Hi, it's Alice, and this is Taylor Swift, explaining the three basic truths she learned from her parents. That you should treat people the way you want to be treated, that you must believe you can achieve whatever you want to in life, and that Carole King is the greatest songwriter of all time. (laughs) Taylor Swift had the honor of inducting Carole King into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few weeks ago. I grew up dancing around the living room in socked feet to the sounds of Carol's soulful voice, her infectious melodies, and lyrics that I, a seven-year-old, thought had been crafted from my exact specific life experience. I listen to Carol's music now, and I feel that same tingle of recognition. Her songs speak to the true and honest feelings that everyone has felt, is currently feeling, or hopes to feel one day. So it is only right for them to be passed down like precious heirlooms from parents to children, older siblings to younger, lovers to each other. These songs come to you from somewhere else, and then suddenly they are partly yours. When Carol King got up to accept, she repaid the compliment, calling Taylor Swift her professional granddaughter. This was Carol King's second time being inducted. She was already in the Hall of Fame as a song writer with her former husband and music partner, Jerry Goffin. But this time, she was inducted for her career as a performer. The ceremony was quite the fun extravaganza, and luckily, you can watch it yourself if you have HBO Max. They just started streaming it. There are star-studded tributes to all the inductees and performances, including one by Carol King herself, who's now 79 years old. Okay, everybody, please sing along. You just call out my name. And you know wherever I am, I'll come running, running again to see. The Academy of Achievement has some bragging rights when it comes to Carol King and Taylor Swift. King was inducted into the Academy back in 2014, and Taylor Swift attended as a youth delegate when she was 19 near the beginning of her career. Five years ago on What It Takes, we posted an episode about Carol King and another songwriting genius, Hal David. At the time news events were unfolding, that spoke to the power of song to heal and to unite. We think it's worth listening to again. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, It was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth, darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. 
I'm Alice Winkler. Just three days after the massacre at a gay nightclub in Orlando, 60 of Broadway's biggest stars came together at a recording studio. And I'm talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda, Sarah Jessica Parker, Nathan Lane, Adina Menzel, Sean Hayes. They came together to record a song in support of the devastated LGBT community of Orlando. And this is the song they chose. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now was a massive 1960s hit. The lyrics were written by Hal David, the music by Burt Bacharach. Five decades later, the song's power to move people obviously still holds. We don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross, enough to last, enough to last. Hal David died a few years ago at the age of 91, so we can only imagine how moved he'd be to see his song, his very favorite, finding a new life with new meaning. And he'd appreciate you knowing that he wrote the words. People remember the people who sing their songs. They, They don't remember those who write them. We aim to correct that today. Hal David is the focus of this episode of What It Takes. Hal David and another of the most amazing and prolific songwriters of the 1960s and 70s, Carol King. Now, Carol King, of course, is more famous as a singer. She happened to be one of the voices on this Broadway for Orlando recording you're still hearing. That's not why we're pairing her with Hal David in this episode but I do take it as a sign. So here is the reason we're combining Carol King with Hal David in one episode. In their interviews with the Academy of Achievement, each talked about the art of the song. Each was part of a legendary songwriting duo. Each came from Brooklyn and made a career in New York's legendary Braille building. And here's the heart of the matter. If you were born between about 1950 and 1975, a good number of the songs you know by heart were probably penned by one of them. If you're younger than that, you probably still know their songs because they are songs with staying power and because your parents likely belted them out in the car on road trips. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet, walk on. Again. 
Those are just a very few of Hal David's other songs. But let's switch now for a moment to Carole King. Carole King's rise to superstardom is well documented. For one, there's a Broadway musical based on her life and career called Beautiful, playing at the Stephen Sondheim Theater and touring the country. But if you only know her as the singer who made Tapestry in 1971, one of the best-selling albums of all time, then you're missing a big part of the story. a decade before Tapestry, Carole King, still then a teenager, paired up musically and romantically with Jerry Goffin. She wrote the music initially, and he wrote the lyrics. Together, they wrote hit after hit after hit, recorded by other singers, people like, oh, the Beatles, and the Shirelles, who gave Carole King her first number one hit. Tonight you're mine. King was 18, by the way, when that came out. Then there were the Drifters. And if this world starts getting you down, there's room up for two, up on the roof. And Herman's Hermits. Last night I met a new girl in the neighborhood. Whoa, yeah. Something tells me I'm into something. The monkeys. Another pleasant valley Sunday. And let's not forget little Eva. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. As of this interview, I'm 72 years old, officially turned 72 earlier this week. This interview was recorded in 2014. And the journey includes having grown up and not thinking of myself as beautiful in the sense that most young girls were expected to be beautiful. There was an ideal that we were held to. I didn't feel beautiful when I was growing up. And I found my niche. I couldn't compete with girls who were thought of as beautiful. So I found my niche in music, and that was where I found my beauty. And I always knew I could do that. I always felt confident in doing that. And then as I grew up, I brought other, you know, insecurities, but I always knew that my music worked. I married a lyricist. Uh, My first husband was a lyricist. And I wasn't even thinking about being beautiful then. I was thinking about writing songs and... In that, there was beauty. Um, One of the things I admired about him was he had really great intelligence, and he exposed me to ways of thinking about, I always like to read, I always like to go to plays, 
Um, but he had a sensibility. My mother had the same sensibility. It was an understanding. I'm more instinctive about my understanding of things. They had the instinctive understanding, but also the ability to verbalize it and make it an intellectual uh, experience to talk about it. And I learned so much from Jerry and from my mother, and all of that went to inform my learning process. And then when Jerry and I eventually uh, divorced, um, I had to find my own voice and my own way of thinking, but I brought to my life what I had learned from him, and I became a lyricist along with being a musician. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing, nothing is going right. The music was always there for me, always, always. It still is. It's like I cannot do it for six months and when I need it, it just comes rushing out because that's what I do. But the lyric writing, there are just layers upon layers that I didn't really understand but came to learn. And then as I went through life and had other experiences, the experience of having success as a songwriter is like, wow, this is great, you know, and uh, then becoming a singer. I was nudged into that by James Taylor, who taught me how to perform. Uh, Lou Adler, who gave me the confidence to make uh, a recording as a recording artist on my own. I never wanted to be an artist. So now I'm a recording artist and then I'm a performing artist. And all of this kind of unrolled. I never really had ambitions to do more than be a really good songwriter. This is a journey. And I'll be there. You got a friend. This child of Brooklyn came by music naturally. It was important. It was important to my grandmother to have music in the house. My grandmother grew up in, um, in Russia and in her little small village. She was, my grandmother was the daughter of a baker and they didn't have a lot of money in her village. The girls with a lot of money her age had pianos in their living rooms, and so she dreamed that her daughter would play piano, and she exposed my mother to music, and my mother's real affinity was theater, but she learned enough music to pass on to me. Carol King, of course, had a lot of talent, and she almost had perfect pitch, but she had something else, too, at a very young age. I have a level of chutzpah um, in, in that if there's something that I would like to achieve, I don't do it with arrogance, but I think someone's going to make it. Why don't I, you know, why, why not me? And if you don't try, you'll never know. Maybe you could have achieved it. So there, there is that level of go for it. Looking out on the morning rain I used to feel so uninspired. In 1957, she told her dad she wanted to meet the famous rock and roll DJ Alan Freed. And so she did. Alan Freed suggested that she just start looking up record companies in the Manhattan phone book. And she did that too. 
I was a teenager when I first started going to record companies in New York. I was 15, and I loved the people that were making records then. Um, and I thought, well, I want to do that too. Not as an artist, but as a songwriter. And maybe at that time I thought, well, maybe I can sing them, but I didn't want to be a star or anything. I just wanted people to hear my music. And so I called up record companies and got appointments, because in those days you could. It was in the mid-50s, and you could get appointments. It, the music industry wasn't a mammoth industry the way it is now. And there were things called A&R men, which were artists in repertoire, people that actually knew music, made the decisions, and they had pianos in their offices. So I went for it, and Don Costa recognized some talent. Don Costa was a, an A&R man. He was a, an arranger, a producer, and he uh, recognized my ability and let me make records and put them out. After Carole King and Jerry Goffin had their first really huge hit with Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow?, they were able to get a working space in the office building at Broadway and 49th, better known simply as the Brill Building. The Brill Building had become the vortex of the pop music industry in the 1940s, and by the 50s and 60s, as rock and roll took off, it was the place to be if you were a music publisher, record label, radio promoter, or songwriter. Hal David and Burt Bacharach met at the Brill Building and began their legendary partnership just a few years before Carol King and Jerry Goffin arrived. Music historians and musicians themselves often talk about it as a song factory, but Hal David had a different take, as he told the Academy of Achievement in 2010. Well, I guess you, you could call it that. I never thought of it, but I, I thought it was more of a home by this time, I got to know so many of the people, so many of the other writers, and very often we'd sing our own, sing our songs to other songwriters, and they'd sing songs to us. And of course, if they had a hit, when we didn't have a hit, we'd be jealous, even though we were kind of happy for them, <laughs> but jealous. Why not me? That competitive atmosphere fueled a lot of music. Hal David first got a job inside the Brill Building after he got out of the Army, where he had auditioned his way into the special services, providing entertainment to troops on the Pacific Front. He worked on skits and musicals and realized he wanted to follow in his successful brother's footsteps as a songwriter. I went to my brother and I, I said, well, what do I do? You know, what, what? He said, well, there's, there's a building called the Brill Building. It's the Tin Pan Alley of our, our time in New York. And he said, it has 11 floors. You can start on the first floor and go from publisher to publisher until you reach the 11th, or start on the 11th and go from publisher to publisher until you reach the first. My first collaborator was still my oldest and dearest friend, Norman Monath. We, we'd, play, we'd play the song for the publisher live at the piano. And uh, one day I, I got a song recorded, 
My first song is called Horizontal. And a woman named Bunty Pendleton, who is on RCA Victor, she recorded the song of Thrill My Life. I just want to be horizontal For a year or three or maybe more I just want to stay horizontal From the day I walk through the door Disconnect the phone in the parlor Throw away the key and go to bed I just want to be horizontal Need a pillow under my head I've done a lot of hiking Never to my liking I've left that all behind Now all at once I'm lazy Though it may seem crazy There's only one thing on my mind It wasn't a hit, but it made Hal David enough money to pay his rent. And by 1949, he did have a big enough hit to get a contract offer. Hal David says he didn't read the contract, and he didn't send it to a lawyer. He was so excited, he just signed for a couple hundred dollars and a space to work with a piano. Several years and several big hits later, he and Burt Bacharach started talking. Burt was on the contract to Famous Music, which was a publishing arm of Paramount. I, I had an arrangement with Famous Music we knew each other. He was writing with one person, I was writing with somebody else in offices at Famous Music on the sixth floor of the Brill Building. And one day we decided we tried to write a few songs together. One of them was this very jaunty tune, The Story of My Life. Someday I'm gonna write the story of my life I'll tell about the night we met And how my heart can't forget the way You smiled at me It was recorded by country singer Marty Robbins and became the number one hit on the country charts and number 15 overall. Firstly, I didn't know about country songs. I didn't know there was such a thing as, as country songs or rhythm and blues songs or, or, or whatever. I thought they were just songs. Uh, and we had Magic Moments with Perry Como, which was a very big hit internationally. But, but we still continued working with other people. And I think we started to write t together permanently or exclusively is perhaps the better word. When Dionne Waugh came into our lives, she came into our lives and she came up to see if she could make some demonstration records for us, demos. This probably was around 1961. She'd done backup singing and we knew her from that. 
and, and she had asked if she could do some demos for us, and we invited her to our place at Paramount. And, and she came in and she sang for us and she blew us away, just blew us away. Such great musicality. I mean, she, she was, she's a real musician, you know, she's just so musical. And we, we learned quickly that she could do our songs so well. We, we did our first date and we had a song called Don't Wake Me Over. First time she really re recorded by herself and it was an enormous hit. And then we had hit after hit after hit after hit for about 17 years. Don't pick on the things I say, the things I do, just love me with all my fault. The way that I love you, I'm begging you, don't make me over. There was definitely some symbiosis at work there. Hal David found inspiration in Dionne Warwick's voice, and she found truth in his lyrics. Here she is in a 2010 interview with the Academy of Achievement. I have to believe what I'm singing about and uh, not uh, feel that I'm singing something that I don't feel comfortable singing. I never had that problem with Hal David, ever. But Hal David is, I don't call him a, a songwriter. I refer to him as a poet. He is, he's very special and has a way of writing to the heart, not at it, to it. And I've, I have actually found myself hoarse on, on occasion and have literally stood while the music played and spoke the lyrics. And it's, it, I mean, it, it had the same effect as if I was singing it. Since 1962, I've been singing these songs. And each one is delicious. What can I tell you? Their hits together included Do You Know the Way to San Jose, Walk On By, Anyone Who Had a Heart, and lots more. But that first hit, her very first solo recording, was in 1961. And it happened to be the same year Carol King and Jerry Goffin had their first hit. Here's how Hal David described the process of writing a song, followed by Carol King describing her creative process. We sometimes started with some lyrics, sometimes started with some melody, sometimes started with a whole lyric, sometimes started with a whole melody. Sometimes we'd sit in a room and just work on a song and build it. It was almost like architecture. The one thing that Bert and I did particularly well was he could write to a lyric. Not, not every composer, uh, uh, technically any composer can write to any lyric. And technically any lyric writer can write to any melody. But, but, but you've got to be able to do it good. He, he is far and away the best composer. 
composer I've worked with who could write to a lyric. And I think I do write lyrics to his music in a pretty good way, too. The lights in the harbor Don't shine for me three songs at, at, at one time, but not, not fast. You know, we, we, we were really very good craftsmen in terms of not letting things go until we were happy with them. They were happy with their songs, yes. But interviewer Gail Eichenthal asked Hal David if he had a good sense of which ones would make it big with listeners. I always think the song is going to be successful before, I, if I take it around. I don't take take a show a song that I don't think will be successful. So that, that means you're not terribly surprised when it is successful? I'm, I'm always surprised. <laughs> I'm always surprised. What's it all about, Alfie? There are two lyrics uh, I'm most proud of. One was a, a, a big hit called Alfie. I think Alfie may be the lyric I got the closest to getting exactly everything I felt about the subject. We wrote that for a film, a British movie that Paramount was going to release. Burke was in California now. He was with Angie Dickinson. Uh, I was still, my main home was on Long Island, he said, why don't you get a start? It was my job to get a start. I had a lot of trouble with Alfie because Alfie was a funny title. It doesn't sound funny anymore. But Alfie, when it, 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 before you heard the song, sounded like an old-fashioned English musical song. Something you would dance to and be silly about and I had to get that out of my mind. And I struggled with it and struggled with it and couldn't get it and couldn't get it. And one day I thought of, what's it all about, Alfie? And from there on, I knew how to do it. What's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when you sort it out, Alfie? Are we meant to take more than we give or are we meant to be kind? And if only fools are kind, Alfie, then I guess it is wise to be cruel. And if life belongs only to the strong, Alfie, what would you lend on an old golden rule? As sure as I believe there's a heaven above, Alfie, I know that there is something much more, something even non-believers can believe in. I believe in love, Alfie, 
Until you find the love you've missed, you're nothing, Alfie. Without true love, we just exist, Alfie. When you walk, let your heart lead the way, and you'll find love any day, Alfie. I love that line, when you walk, let your heart lead the way. that the director didn't like the song. He was adamant. He finally said, well, my, my son is very hip and, and he knows about songs and he's not, we'll play it for him. Apparently, his son didn't like it. And if it weren't for Howard Koch, who was the head of the studio, who became a great friend of ours, but whom we, at least I didn't know at the time, Howard said, what's this song I hear about? And we played it for him, and he loved the song. He finally had to say, I won't release the movie without the song. That's <laughs> one of my very favorite, but one of, and Bert's as well. Creativity comes in different ways. I've written with co-writers, and there's a wonderful spark that happens when you write with a co-writer. Somebody, one of the two of you, it doesn't matter which, says, puts out an idea and the other one, you know, it's, it's like any collaboration, you know, business people collaborate, it's, it, there is that. Ideas, there's an idea. I don't know where that comes from, that's out of thin air. I figured it out, I was high and low and everything in between. Wayne Reynolds, chairman of the Academy of Achievement, asked Carol King to describe what it's like when she hears a song she's written on the radio. Um, there, there are different stages. Hearing your song on the radio is a big piece of it. You suddenly know, oh my God, a whole lot of people are going to hear this. But the stage for me is like, first of all, when an idea comes and I work on it and I shape it and, you know, it's just a flowing thing that at the end of which, you know, I keep... I'll reject something and then something will come in and I'll fix it. So there's inspiration, but there's also the perspiration part where you actually craft a song. And then when I'm finished, I, I actually know when I'm finished. Some people say, I'd work on it till they take it away from me, but I actually know when it's ready. And once it's ready, that's a first, oh, a song where there was a nothing. And then the playing of it for the first person you play it for and you see in the person's face and their reaction to it what you hoped you would see. And then you record it, and that's the joy of imagining how an instrument would sound, because it's just me and my piano. And then it's all the things I hear that 
a drum beat, a guitar figure, violins, background vocals. And when you kind of hear them in your head, but then you actually hear them come to life and they're better than you even imagined that level of of realizing it. and then if I'm not the singer and back in the early days I was never the singer you give it to a recording artist who sings it and you go I can't sing that well and and by the way I know I'm a good singer now but and and what I bring to a performance is authenticity but I can't make those notes that Celine Dion or Aretha Franklin make So hearing them sing those notes that I know I wanted to sing, sing them so the way I wanted to, or to hear James sing You've Got a Friend in the way that I imagined it might sound, that's another level. And then the last stage is like hearing it on the radio or realizing that hundreds, thousands, millions of people are hearing it and that it, it's meaningful to them. That's Those are the stages. And it all starts with that little spark of idea that comes from whoever, whatever, wherever, through me. When I heard music that I liked, I heard words right away. Not necessarily the words I'd wind up using, but I, I heard words, I heard titles, I heard as somebody pictures something, I heard something. I've always been like that. They have the sound like they weren't even created, they just happened. Just natural perfection when, when they turn out right. Kind of the way ballerinas make their audience believe they are floating while really they are standing on tormented toes, meticulously controlling every muscle. At least that's the metaphor that came to my mind, listening to Carol King and Hal David describe the work that goes into crafting a song that sounds like it was just meant to be. On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to create a dream come true. So they sprinkled moon dust in your hair and gold starlight in your eyes of blue. Thanks for listening to What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Thanks, as always, to the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation for funding what it takes. Just like me, they long to be.